is Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon or evening, whichever it is, whenever you want to listen to this episode, we welcome you to More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, pediatric speech language pathologist and co-owner of Milestones and Miracles. And this episode today is an exciting one for me and Nicole. I would like to introduce you to Emily Cohen. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Lacey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us your time and sharing your expertise. Um, So everyone, Emily is a speech language pathologist, and she is the founder of Tandem Speech Therapy, a pediatric speech therapy practice serving the Austin, Texas area. While an undergraduate at Indiana University Bloomington, Emily studied special education. Upon graduating, she worked in the public schools for a few years before returning for her master's degree in speech language pathology. Although Emily enjoyed teaching, her favorite part of her job was forming forming meaningful relationships with kids and their families. She knew she could help even more families as a speech language pathologist. Her previous work with kids with special needs continues to inform her pediatric speech therapy practice. In 2018, Emily self-published the book, Playing with Purpose, which supports caregivers in their journey to build speech and language skills in children through play. So... Play, it's so critically important in child development. And getting that message out to families and parents is one of the main reasons that Nicole and I started our business and then went on to create our product, One, Two, Three, Just Play With Me. Because as young parents several years ago, when Nicole and I were just having our first kids, we were feeling this pressure of pushing academic concepts really early on our kids. We were feeling this pressure of enrolling our two-year-olds in gymnastics class or other structured activities that aren't age appropriate or developmentally appropriate at the time. So we knew if we, who were working in fields with children, were well-versed on child development, we knew if we were feeling this pressure, certainly other parents must have been feeling this pressure too. So it inspired us to kind of create this conversation, create this company and this presence on social media, and create this podcast to share with families why play is important, why not to push all those other things too soon. You obviously share that same passion and vision that um, that has led you to now supporting families, spreading this awareness for play, advocating for play, and, um, and, and then publishing your book, which is a wonderful resource for families and for professionals alike. So that's why I wanted to have you on. I knew we were going to have a lot in common off the bat. I knew you were going to have great information to share with our audience. And I'm just, again, very thankful and excited that you're here. So let's go ahead and get started, Emily. Again, we know play is important for for child development and learning, but parents, again, don't always, they're not always aware of the purpose of play, why it's so important. So will you please share with with us, what are the benefits of play for children? Well, I think it's important to start with um, the fact that, especially at really young ages, it's really important for our children to be learning whatever it might be in context. So it means in the moment. Um, kids are really explicit learners when they're really young. Um, And so the most functional ways that we can teach our kids all kinds of different things 
is in daily activities and daily routines. And one of the most common daily activities for children is play. Um, I think daily activities and routines in your house are also really important. So there's things, you know, like mealtime and bath time, book reading is a routine. So all those are really valuable, but play is the foundation. I mean, there's that super famous quote that's been attributed to many, many different people that play is the work of childhood or play is the work of the child. So if you think about it, play is a child's occupation. Yes. It's, you know, the, it's going to be during their awake hours, probably the thing they're, they're doing, or they should be doing, um, spending their most time doing, excuse me. Um, and so that's going to be, like I said, the most functional or the, or the opportunity that's going to be the most rich for um, building up any kind of skill. You know, in this case, we're talking about play for speech and language development, um, but that's true for motor development and, and other functions and other parts of child development that are really important. Absolutely. And I've heard people say too, play is a child's job, right? You said their occupation, that really is what they're meant to do with the majority of their time versus being, you know, in structured, more structured activities controlled by an adult or other screen time activities, whatever it may be. Um, and, and we know play naturally lends itself to multi-sensory involvement, right? Play is hands-on, it's visual. There might be a smell to what they're playing with, but all of that sensory involvement then creates those pathways within the, the brain and creates that learning, helps that learning to happen faster versus yeah. just staring at a screen to learn a new skill. Um, yeah. That learning has to happen within context. And I think when we're talking about speech and language and play, right, speech and language falls under the bigger picture of communication. And the function of communication is really social. And so as a parent or a caregiver, that communication or their, that interaction that you're having with your child is most likely going to be doing during that play and everyday routine. So it's the perfect opportunity for supporting that part of their development. Right. And I've, I've again, been following your Instagram page and benefiting from all your great wisdom and advice. And you say something about interaction comes first, right? Yes. That interaction has to occur before that the play and the learning and play can occur that before the communication can occur, there has right. to be that, that joint attention, that interest in what yeah. each other are doing. So that interaction is critically important. So we know play is important and it's actually so important that researchers and experts along the way have been able to divide it into different stages and types. You know, play is complicated. Sometimes we think it's this innocent thing that just keeps kids busy, but it has stages and types and those develop as the kid develops. So share with us what those stages and types are and just explain them to our audience a little bit. Sure. So there, I'm going to start with the stages of play and there are five different social stages of play. And, and as you mentioned, this is super research-based. This is dating all the way back to research from the 1930s. And so the first stage of play we often see kids um, engaging in is called solitary play. Solitary means on their own. And that's exactly what it is if you think of. And this is the kind of play that we see typically before kids turn the age of two. So this is if you're thinking about your child sitting on the floor and playing with a ring stacking toy or building with blocks or um, a kind of play that we see really um, early for kids um, is the kind of play where they take things take things out and put things into containers, container play, whatever might that might be. And often that's solitary, just something they're doing on their own. 
Um, you were talking about the five senses. It's really functional for um, tactile learning, um, visual learning. Um, and then we'll talk about this probably a little bit later, but there's all the different kinds of language that as a parent or a caregiver or you know, some other kind of provider that you can embed during those routines when a kiddo is playing. The next stage of play is called onlooker play. And this is, um, again, kind of happens at all different ages with kids, but this is just when kids are watching other children play. We, almost all of us learn by watching and interacting with other people. And so kids, um, kids function as really good teachers for each other. So you might see um, if you're picturing children on a playground and you might see one child kind of standing off watching another child go down the slide. And that's onlooker play. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a specific age of development. Um, we often see it in preschool kinds of settings where kids observe and watch other kids. And then maybe a few days later, you might see the one child interacting with toys or activities in the same way that they had previously seen another child maybe a few days before. The third stage of play is parallel play. This, this stage might be something that's much more familiar to people and, and, and this terminology we hear um, frequently. <clears throat> and this is the kind of play we start to see emerge in kids at two and three years old. So parallel play is exactly that. If you think about parallel lines, you're gonna see kids playing next to each other, playing side by side. A lot of times they're going to be doing the same activity. So let's say if there's a, a giant set of blocks on the floor, you might see two children or your own two children playing with blocks next to each other. But the difference between parallel play and the next stage of play is that the children aren't going to be interacting with each other. They're just going to be interacting with the toy itself. Mm -hmm. And again, that is around two to three years old. Then the next um, stage of play, which happens, you know, we're talking about maybe three and a half to four years old is called associative play. And so we had parallel play where the kids were staying next to each other, but playing with the same um, toy or the same type of toy. And associative play is when kids are start, um, get interested in the people, um, interested in people playing, but not necessarily in a super organized activity. So you might see kids um, sharing markers at an easel, but making separate pictures. So it's a little bit more interactive, but the very last stage of play is cooperative play. Um, and so we're gonna see that as kids get to the later three-year range, four, five, and beyond. And so cooperative play is when kids begin to share ideas, they share toys, they follow sort of established rules and guidelines that are kind of established amongst themselves. And they're interested in not only the other people, but in the activity and it kind of all happening cooperatively, it all happening together. Awesome. And just before we go on to types of play, yeah. so these stages of play, they do, they do develop in, in a sequence, right? Like we, the baby right. starts with solitary, then they should grow into the next stage of play. So it's, it's important for parents to be aware of these stages so they can support their child and make sure they are kind of developing these stages, you know, in a sequence as they get yeah. older. However, and this just came to me as you were talking, 
you know, certainly you have an older, a six, seven, eight year old who's, who's, who's developed all these stages of play, but they still might go back and engage in solitary play, or they still might go back and engage in onlooker play. I mean, I think kids of all ages are always looking around at what other kids are doing and then maybe imitating what they see. So I think it's important to point out, yes, the stages develop in a sequence, um, but you're, you might see your kid engaging in all these stages of play as they grow and develop. Yeah. And that's yeah, okay, I think that's right? I think that's a really good point. That's true of a lot of different skills. Like if we're thinking um, about like gross motor skills, like we know it's really important for kids to crawl before they walk. But even when kids are really um, good at walking on their own and they don't need to hold your hand, we still see them crawling around. I mean, I still crawl around as an adult. Like, <laughs> right. And that's true of lots of different things. And I think that's a really good point and important yes. for parents and caregivers to remember. Yes. Okay. So now let's talk about the types of play. Yeah. So there are three different types of play and they also kind of have ages that, that correlate with them. Um, but I think they're kind of, those ages are less important. I mean, the ages aren't really super important. Development is a continuum and all kids develop at different rates, which is something we know, but um, anyway, so the first type of play is called functional play. It's what we often see in infants and toddlers. And functional play is a combination of sensory related and motor play. So if you think of your baby mouthing objects, right, that's how they're exploring their world really early on. It's a lot of really tactile play. So that's using their sense of touch. Um, but it also might be things um, like a toddler climbing on objects or an older child riding a bicycle. So it's really fun. like it has a really expressed purpose. Um, a child rides a bike, um, you roll a ball, you climb up a ladder. So those all have really specific functions, which is why it's called functional play. The next type of play that we see in kids is called symbolic, or sometimes we call it representational play. And then that even gets subdivided. So there's constructional play, and it's just exactly what it sounds. Um, it's when we use any kind of material to make other objects. So that might be building a tower with blocks, playing with um, Legos, um, making some kind of Play-Doh type material and creating with it. And then there's also dramatic play. We sometimes call this pretend play. And this is when we see kids pretend um, scenarios. Maybe um, your child um, is playing with other kids and someone is the teacher and the other children are the students or um, kids, um, sometimes, uh, we see like in pretend play, we see kids using objects to function as other things. So the example I like to say is like picking up your shoe and pretending it's a phone and, and pretending like you're talking into your shoe as if it's a phone. And then the last type of play we see is gameplay. And it's, again, it's, this is often what we see in older children. Um, it's when kids play games and these games often have rules. Sometimes they use logic. And this is when we really see social skills um, start to emerge, um, which is, you know, part of that interaction. And that's really important. So um, and kids use these social skills to navigate the interactions. Um, so it could be board games or card games. It could even be um, more um, 
like motor games, like playing soccer or um, other kinds of interactive sport type things where you're in, you know, playing maybe in a more competitive fashion. All of that is gameplay. Okay, so we have the stages, we have the types of play. And then there's also, there's different ways we approach play in that, you know, we sometimes leave kids to their own devices, offer them this time and space for just free unstructured play. They drive the ship. We don't interrupt. We don't interfere. We just let them go. But then there's this, this other concept of purposeful play, which is kind of your wheelhouse and, and what you wrote your book about. So explain to parents the difference and, and what purpose purposeful play serves in helping your child develop skills and acquire new skills as they develop. Yeah. So purposeful play and like what I would call child-led play have a lot of overlap because one of the things before I talk about purposeful play, I want, I want to talk about how it's really important and kids are going to learn the most, soak up the most information in our interactions with them when they're really making the choices and guiding the play. So that is different than what we might see in a much more academic setting where there's a person who is determining what is going to be taught and how it's going to be taught. In purposeful play, we still have control as the adult as to like how and what's gonna happen, but we're really following the child's lead. So if this week your kiddo is super interested in like the 20 boxes that Amazon just delivered to your house and they're playing with them and, you know, using them just like you might use small wooden blocks. Well, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to, we're going to follow their lead and we're going to turn that instance into purposeful play. And when I talk about purposeful play, I'm talking about what we can do as parents and caregivers and educators, speech language pathologists, whatever kind of person you might be interacting with the kids in your life, how we can turn that moment of play with those big boxes from Amazon into expressly kind of focusing on or really thinking about how we can also expand and build a child's speech and language development. Okay. So it's making kind of some intentional choices about how we talk and how we interact with a child during that activity that maybe they've chosen to engage in. Right. And it's important that we stress following the child's lead, right? Because if we, yes. we want to target a skill or work on something specific, but we're forcing a toy on them or an activity on them that they have no control or no choice in, they're going to be less cooperative. They're going to be less interested. We're not going to reach our end goal near as quickly as, as if we were to just follow their lead and be flexible in the moment, which is sometimes can be challenging for some of us if we have yeah. a plan and we want to stick to it. But um, I think all of us, all of us learn, or most people learn through repetition. That's just a function of all different kinds of learning, whether it's in a more academic setting or in a more play-based setting like we're talking about. And one of the things that we know is when we follow a child's lead, 
and we're we're engaging in the things that they're interested in they're more likely to stay so that that opportunity for play is going to be longer whereas if i chose the cars and the kiddo wasn't super interested in it maybe they only sat and played with the car for 30 seconds but they were really interested in the blocks and they stayed for three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes and that longer interaction is going to allow us to stimulate and boost their language with a lot of repetition and the repetition is what's going to build those connections in their brain it's going to help it's going to help you know build those synapses the things that that we want their brain to do to either produce language or to understand our language um, and so when we're following their lead, we can, we can extend, we build their concentration and the longer we're in that, that one routine or that one moment of play, the more opportunity we have. Absolutely. To reach that goal, the end goal of whatever yeah. we're trying to target. I will say myself as an SLP working with children, learning to be flexible within play, the parameters of play is a skill that I have honed over the years. And I still definitely yeah. have more growth to do that. Um, I work in early intervention, so I'm going into people's homes and I am bagless, meaning I don't take a bag of toys in with me, right. but I did for several years because mm -hmm. I had my toys that I felt worked and targeted the skills I wanted to target. And then over time and, and more education and, and eye opening and realization on my part, I realized that wasn't the the best approach. I needed to, you know, access the toys and the materials that were available in the home. And, and so I have learned to do that, you know, throughout the years a little bit better, I, I hope anyway. But, um, you know, I wasn't following the child's lead at all. Typically they liked the toys I brought, but right. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always able to hold their attention. Like you're speaking of, because I was choosing what activity we were doing. I was totally steering the ship. And, and I've realized if I follow their lead more, just like all those points you made, they stay with me longer. I achieve, you know, achieve better outcomes in the end. I, you know, am able to empower the parent more to kind of jump in and, and follow my lead and access what they have available in the home for those yeah. purposeful play opportunities as they arise. So, okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so I've heard a quote, I don't know who said it first or <laughs> who said it last, but toys are are the tools of play right and toys are very important um you know just like i mentioned household items you mentioned cardboard boxes there's lots of things within the home that can become a toy or can be used as a toy it doesn't necessarily mean it has to come off the shelf you know from target or walmart or cost a certain amount of money to be a toy that's um useful you know in helping a child develop but um you know as an ei therapist as an SLP and a pediatric practice, I'm sure you get the same questions I do. Parents are always asking, you know, what, what toys should, should I buy? So-and-so's birthday's coming up. Grandparents want a list of what would be, you know, good, appropriate toys for his age. So this is a conversation we have a lot with families yeah. and I'm interested. Um, I kind of know a little bit, cause again, I follow your Instagram account, but I'm interested what you um, say to parents and families that ask you that question about toys. Yeah. Um, I think there are a few big ideas that I like to share with parents. So the first one is that I really encourage parents and caregivers to think about choosing toys where your child is going to be the one doing the work, not the toy. And so in most cases, that means doing away with toys that are battery powered. 
Now, that doesn't mean if you're a parent listening to this and you're like looking at your child's toys and there are a few things that they really, really love that have batteries. It doesn't mean that you need to put them in a shelf or throw them away or or whatever. There are a lot of toys like that that function nearly the same when we take the batteries out of them. And so the example that I like to give, because it's a toy that people tend to be familiar with, is that um, piggy bank toy. It's pink. And it has coins and there's a little door and you can push the pig's nose and the door opens and closes and, and children can put the coins in. I have that toy. It's a toy that operates with batteries because when you push the pig's nose, it can sing and it can count and do all these things. But when I have played with that toy in therapy with kids, mine doesn't have the batteries in it anymore. Same thing with my farm toy and my house. All of these toys came with batteries because they all have bells and whistles and lights and sounds. All of them don't have the batteries in them. And the reason is that I want to be the one or I want parents to be the one providing the language for the interaction, whether it's modeling or encouraging our child to imitate us, whatever it might be. Um, and that's just going to be a much more meaningful learning opportunity for the kids hearing the speech, hearing the words coming from you versus kind of this rote sound. And also, like if we're thinking about that piggy bing toy, um, it counts. And we were talking about this at the beginning of our time together, children who are like 12 to 18 months old, who have the have the motor capability of putting the coins in don't need to know how to count to 10. There's yeah. no reason that they can't hear those words and their brain's going to store away that information in the vocabulary for the time when they're ready. But it's not something that we should really anticipate our children doing that young. They just don't need to know it. Yes. And that's something that really upsets me as a therapist. There's so many toys on the market that are electronic that light up and sing ABCs and count and are marketed towards infants and yeah. toddlers. And you know, that's one of the first things I bring up to parents. This is a nice toy. And I know you probably paid a lot of money for it, mm -hmm. but it's targeting the wrong things. We've got a yeah. baby who's not saying a single word yet. I'm not worried about him counting. I want him right. to say mama and up and water, yes. whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, and I think, I, I think again, you know, the whole marketing monster of, and the baby toy world, you know, parents, it, it preys on their guilt. They think they need to teach those things now because that's the yeah. toys that are on the shelf. So they kind of fall into that trap unknowingly wanting the best for their child and, you know, think they're doing yes. the best. So it's, you know, important for us to educate them on that. And I love that ditch the batteries, you know, yeah. take the batteries out because they're going to, the child is going to learn from their primary caregiver. The research mm -hmm. tells us that yes. um, that's why we follow a coaching model in early intervention. We, you know, educate and empower the parent to take the lead because research tells us the, the parent, the primary caregiver is the best teacher for their child at those young ages. And um, so they're going to learn skills from their parents versus the toy that sings the ABCs over and over yeah. and over again. So, yeah. okay, great, great. I great. heard a quote or I, I somebody commented on, on um, something I shared on LinkedIn the other day. And she, she shared this quote that she heard. Neither of us can figure out who to attribute it to, but it was not mine. So I'll just yes. say that to start. Um, it was something along the lines of like, your child is better off in your lap than playing with an app. Oh, I love it. And it so rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> 
better. Okay. So true. So true that, and that screen time learning, this is a conversation for a whole another episode, but it's very one dimensional, right? You know, it's Mm -hmm. very, it's not multi-sensory. It's very rote. It's very tied to that one specific show or app or episode, you know, whatever it is. So yeah, that's not multi-dimensional, multi-sensory learning. It's not going to stick. It's not going to be functional. Yeah, I like that quote. I'll mm-hmm. I'll quote it from an unknown too. <laughs> an unknown source. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna figure out who said it first. Yeah, and I love anything that rhymes, of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> so helps I love it, it. Helps it stick, right? All yeah, those- it does. <laughs> it does. Okay, so um, I skipped over one question that I I want to bring back up. So, if a parent um wants to be more intentional with how they play with their child, if they want their interaction to be more purposeful with their child when playing with them. Do you have some like startup tips for them, some boxes they can check to know that they're, they're doing what they should be doing for purposeful play? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the biggest thing and the best place to start is to be on your child's level so that you can see and interact with them and see and interact with the things that they are seeing and interacting with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether that's, sitting on the floor, or if your child is sitting in their high chair, sitting down in your chair so that you can be face to face as best as possible. Um, All of these, all of these things, like um, I mentioned, you know, social skills before, um, things like joint attention, um, sharing some kind of back and forth exchange. We're doing that right now as adults in conversation, but that back and forth exchange happens in really young kids, it just looks a little bit different. So that's where like rolling a ball back and forth is that early form of back and forth interaction. And we're setting the stage for it to help our kids be confident communicators um, and really be able to have good communication skills with others if that's how they're going to interact with the world when they get to that stage in their development. Um, So being down at their level is going to be really important. The other thing that I like to help parents with, and this is something that I tend to do more in in a therapy setting, is really think about some of the vocabulary that we're using with kids. That's one way we can be intentional. So we know um, from research that the early sounds that we hear from children are often the sounds that the vowels make. So I talked to parents a lot about, um, I talked about container play before where kids take things out and put things in, out and in are both really good functional early words for kids that start with vowels. So maybe you hear your child saying ow, not out, but every time they say ow, right after you say out, they're imitating that same word and we can reinforce, um, provide a lot of positive feedback um, and build, you know, syllable structure and word structure from that. Um, I also think a lot about in terms of sound development, um, the early sounds that kids make, the sounds with their lips, like the letter P, um, like up or pop for bubbles. B is another really early sound we often hear from children. There are tons of kids, toys and activities that um, that have that sound in them, like ball and bubble and bus and book, all kinds of words. And then that sound like the letter M, more, mama, milk. Um, so I often 
sit with parents um, and we, you know, sometimes we make lists of words um, for a couple of activities that their child's been really interested in playing with that week, or we see what the child gravitates toward in the specific session we're in. And then we make a list of five or 10 words. So if the child returns to that activity at another point in the week when I'm not with the parent, they have this kind of toolbox of vocabulary that they can think about using repetitively when they're playing with the child and the activity that their child has chosen. That's a good tip. So just kind of heightening their awareness of what to target and what's developmentally appropriate to target within that play routine or activity specifically. You mentioned getting at the getting down on the child's level um, to encourage more purposeful play and interaction. One tip, um, if you have an ottoman or a coffee table, putting the mm-hmm. toy on there, yeah. <laughs> save your back a little bit. Yes, really, good, typically the toddler can stand at the at the coffee table. If it's mm-hmm. an infant, this won't work. But if it's a toddler, that's at least able to pull to stand, and then that really gets you at eye level with yeah. them. Seeming like the edge of your sofa. Yes. Mother. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good one to get um, on their level, and again, kind of save your back as an adult. <laughs> yeah. I spend, I spend a lot of time on the floor playing, so I try to do yes, it. Yes. Right. Like you can't like lay. You right. know, like when kids are really little, you're, you can't like lay on your stomach and be <laughs> right. playing with them super functionally um, for yourself. Right, right, really exactly. Fun. Okay, so this was awesome, awesome information, great conversation. Um, I hope this really helps everyone kind of deepen their understanding of play, why it's so important, the different stages and types of play how to kind of be more purposeful with with the play that they engage their child into target skills. Um, Do you have any recommendations for the audience if it's a family, um, parents that want to learn more about play? Is there like a source that you go to or that you recommend that they check out? Yeah, so there are a few different um, people whose work that I really like. Um, So I am trained by the Hannon Center Um, The Hannon Center is based in Canada. They have books and tons and tons of resources on their blog. All of it is written incredibly parent and caregiver friendly. Um, It's truly written for non-professionals to read. I love um, the book, their program that I'm trained in 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 their book that I really love is called It Takes Two to Talk. And I love it because it kind of gives you a lot of foundations. It will teach you um, some skills and some specific things that you can do when you're interacting with your child, but it also gives you examples. So what it might look like during snack time, if you try this one particular um, new strategy or new tool. Um, Another person whose work that I really love is Laura Mize. Her last name is spelled M-I-Z like zebra E. Um, and I'm she, smiling. Has, I'm smiling because I love her stuff too. Yes. <laughs> and a few years ago when I discovered her, it was like this whole new world. Like I really, yes. I did a couple of her courses. I was like, wow. I mean, she really was an inspiration to me and strengthened my practice and yeah. EI as an SLP. Okay. go ahead. She has amazing YouTube videos. If you've never seen those. So if you like, like, let's say like I've, I've been using the example of blocks a lot, but if your kid is super into blocks this week and you go to YouTube and you search Laura Mai's blocks, she will have like a whole video and she will show you just as if you were working with a speech language pathologist or some other early intervention provider came into your home, she will show you a lot of different ways that you can play with blocks and incorporate 
specific language stimulating or language boosting strategies. And then you can try those with your own kids. Um, and then of course, um, I, I will share that, you know, as you mentioned early on, I wrote a book called Playing With Purpose. Um, and um, one of the things that I really like about the book and how it reads and, and, some, and a lot of feedback that I've gotten from parents and other um, caregivers and, and different types of providers. Um, and I think this is true of a lot of, of different books that are, are written like this for caregivers. Um, I describe the book as reading more like a recipe or like a cookbook. So again, if your kid is, if your child is really interested in sitting for book reading with you, you can open the table of contents, find the two page section on book reading and turn to that. And um, it'll give you, it'll talk about, you know, sort of some of the skills and the things that you can support your child in, in learning through book reading. And then it'll give you some really concrete examples of how to do it. One other um, person in whose resources I wanna mention is another fellow um, speech language pathologist. Um, and her name is Kimberly Scanlon. And she has some really great books that are written again, specifically for parents and caregivers um, that have really great step-by-step, -step, really concrete examples and will teach you and talk you through all different kinds of ways to support your child's speech and language development. Awesome. Love Kimberly Scanlon too. Had her on just a couple episodes ago. Yes. <laughs> she has great resources. Yes. Thank you for mentioning her. That was great. Okay. So those are great resources for families and parents that want to, again, better understand play and the role it plays in their child's development, how they can encourage more purposeful play. What about professionals that are listening yeah. that work with children kind of just want to either refresh their knowledge on the importance of play or get some new ideas. It's always good to get new ideas to be inspired again, kind of gives us a little gas in our, in our tank to keep going and doing what mm -hmm. we're doing. So where would you recommend professionals go to gain some more continuing education on play? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the same resources, the Hannon Center, if you're a speech language pathologist, if you're an early childhood educator, they have courses and trainings that you can take um, specifically targeted depending on the type of professional you are. So if you're a speech language pathologist like we are, then there are courses like It Takes Two to Talk. Um, they have a course called More Than Words, which is geared more towards um, supporting speech and language development in kids um, who are autistic. Um, and they have, a, they have other courses. And then they also have courses specifically for early childhood educators and providers. So if you're not um, a speech language pathologist by profession, but also work in an early childhood capacity, they have really great stuff. Um, again, a lot of Laura Mize's books, she, most of her books are written for professionals and um, can serve as um, inspiration and give you um, tools for then supporting the parents that you work with. Um, uh, oh my gosh, there was one more thing that I was thinking of and now I am blanking on it. Um, okay. If you think of it, I'll add it to the, the show notes, the bio of the show. So yeah, we'll include it there if it comes to you or just interrupt me if it comes to you. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, how can our audience, where do they go to purchase your book? or check out your resources. Do you have a website? Please share your um, Instagram handle. Let them know yeah. where to find you. So my private practice here in Austin is called Tandem Speech Therapy. Um, tandem coming from the idea of working together as early childhood um, educators and speech language pathologists. It's super important. We've talked about that, you know, all of our time together today. 
Um, and so you can find me at Tandem Speech on most places on social media. Um, as I mentioned before, my book is called Playing With Purpose. So if you're specifically interested in the book or I have um, a companion resource that goes along with it, that can be really helpful for um, fellow SLPs and early childhood providers. It'll kind of um, give you, it kind of gives you more of a framework in a way if you're thinking about either wanting some structure for some of your work or you want tools to give as kind of like homework or carryover for the parents that you interact with. It'll kind of give you some forms and some ways to, to support parents with extra learning. All of that, whether you want the ebook or um, the book is also available in print, um, you can find that information at pwpbook.com. So just like playing with purpose. Um, I abbreviate it PWP often. Um, and those are going to be the best ways to find me and all of my information. Okay. Awesome. I love that you offer the book in ebook form. I am old school and prefer a book in my hands that I yeah. can, again, have a multi-sensory experience with. <laughs> it helps me. Um, I love to read, but I like an actual book, but there's lots of people who want less material things lying around and prefer yeah. to have that digital file, that ebook instead. So I think that's great that you offer offer it both in both formats to kind of, you know, please whatever somebody's preference. Yeah. Is. I actually, when I, I self-published the book and I initially only published the ebook and I got so many requests for the book in print, which at the time surprised me. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason that I, I like being able to offer both is that I am only, I only have the capacity to ship to people in the U S there are other ways if you're international and you want the, the book in print, um, there are other ways to get it. Um, but the ebook has really allowed me to reach just an incredibly wide audience, people all over the world, which I'm super grateful for. Yes, absolutely. And parents, her book is, is very specific. You know, you, you touched on that. It's almost kind of like a cookbook. Like you, if you know what your child likes to play with, you go to that, those couple pages and then Emily very, you know, distinctly outlines what to do, what, what to say, you know, how to target skills and build language. So it's not overwhelming. It's not a lot of professional jargon that you're not going to understand. It's, it's very family parent language friendly. And, um, and then the companion that you also offer to kind of, like you said, follow up if you're a professional following the book, using the book, helping parents access it kind of, you know, the stuff that, that goes together with it is also a great resource. So Emily, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for this wonderful, exciting, exciting to me conversation about play. <laughs> it's always thank a joy. You for letting to me talk about what I loved. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's, I mean, I love this podcast because again, I think I said you earlier, allows me to connect with other professionals that share the same passions as Nicole and I. And, and it, again, it just, you know, I always learn something new from everyone I talk to you included, and it just kind of, gives me a little bit of extra energy and inspires me to continue doing what I'm doing and try to do it better every day. So yeah. thank you again for your time. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and we wish you well. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of more than child's play podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, find us on Instagram at milestones, miracles, and on Twitter at milestones M.